Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. And here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. All right, welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic. I am Patrick Beeman. I am a doctor, but I'm actually an OBGYN here talking to a legit licensed mental health professional, Dr. Todd Grande, to kick off this podcast, Healthy versus Toxic, which is all about the things that make relationships healthy versus unhealthy. So, Dr. Grande, before um, launching into this kind of introduction, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? and your training? Sure. So I have a PhD in counselor education supervision, and I'm a licensed counselor and a licensed chemical dependency professional. So I spent a lot of my career working with people who are being treated for mental disorders, supervising other counselors who treat people who are, you know, who have mental disorders. And I've also done consulting, and I was a professor at a university for many years so I have a lot of different experiences kind of related to all types of aspects in mental health, including personality pathology, which is what this podcast, what this show is really looking at, the narcissism and kind of related personality constructs that can be destructive in relationships. So I like to provide educational material and produce content around that area to help people better cope with relationships affected by maladaptive personality constructs. So your PhD is in counselor education and supervision. Um, just curious, how is that different from, you know, a psychiatrist or a psychologist? A psychiatrist is actually a physician. So their training is in medicine. So they primarily treat clients pharmaceutically, although they do have therapeutic training is built in as part of their education. A psychologist does not prescribe medication, but their focus tends to be more in assessment. So you see a lot of psychologists working in environments where assessment is really kind of highlighted, like forensic, family law, areas where an assessment kind of always leads off the discussion as to what's going to happen in a particular situation. It affects the disposition. Counselor educators have a lot of overlap with psychology. Uh, matter of fact, a number of the professors that teach in those programs are psychologists. There's quite a bit of crossover. But our emphasis is really more on the therapeutic relationship and specifically how to help people overcome symptoms. We have training in areas like assessment and personality theory. And in my particular case, I've kind of emphasized those areas in my career. So I'm a little bit unusual as a counselor educator and that I have kind of specialized in areas that are traditionally the domain of psychologists. But to draw the distinction, counselors are really focused, again, on that clinical component and that relationship. And another difference is we tend to focus on development through the lifespan. So we look at more than just necessarily the situation in front of us, again, the assessment piece, but how can a person kind of progress through stages, what stages might they encounter, as they move through family life, career changes, addiction, health problems, all the things that happen to people 
in the long run. So part of the unique aspect of this podcast is our goal is to offer more of a scientific perspective, uh, the perspective of licensed professionals in the fields, uh, in fields of mental health. Uh, so there are, I know, like marriage and family therapy too, um, and uh, social workers can become licensed to do what people might say or consider therapy. And I guess the question I would have is for the psychiatrist and psychologist and uh, counselor educator, is it fair to say that all of these can be therapists? Yeah. I mean, the reality is that even though there are different educations, as you mentioned, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, psychology, psychiatry, and some others like psychiatric nursing, the bottom line is that any of them can be a therapist, and often the careers don't necessarily match the intent of the education, strictly speaking. So, in terms of like if you're looking at somebody delivering therapy with a client who's depressed or who has borderline personality disorder or an addiction, it would be very, very difficult to tell what their educational background was. Maybe if you had you know, 10 sessions you could watch, you could see things like, okay, they, they seem to be emphasizing external resources like a social worker, or they seem to be emphasizing family dynamics, like a marriage and family therapist. But outside of that, it would be, it'd be very tough to tell, right? So in a way, we have these different professions, but the bottom line is we kind of do the same thing. Again, the, the large distinction would be physicians who can prescribe. So their focus might be different. But for the talk therapist, so to speak, we all more or less look the same from the client's perspective, at least 90% of the time. The big thing nowadays and, and why we've you know, titled this Healthy Versus Toxic is there's so much content written in on YouTube and even in podcasts on, quote, toxic personalities or toxic uh, interpersonal dynamics, however you'd want to put that. But I would say the vast majority of the, the treatments of that construct fall under what people call narcissism. Um, would you say that that's, that's fair, that a lot of uh, people writing on these matters are, are treating, say, toxic personalities as equivalent to narcissism as a term? There, I would say yeah. the language surrounding this stuff is probably a little bit inadequate. Absolutely, yeah. The, the tendency is to, it seems like these days, to blame every problem, to attribute every problem to narcissism. And I think toxic really covers a dual contribution. Like if you're looking like a married couple or boyfriend, girlfriend or whatever, you know, one person does something maladaptive, the other person responds maladaptively, there's blame in both directions. And I think sometimes the word narcissism is used to uh, evade some of that blame and say, oh, that person is a narcissist. So they're the ones guilty. They're the ones responsible for the degradation of the relationship. Now, I think there are situations like that where one person is mostly responsible. But again, that's kind of the way the word narcissism has been incorrectly used. And it has been incorrectly blurred with toxic. It's been incorrectly blurred with psychopathic. Um, 
impaired, uh, angry. You know, there's a lot of um, other addiction, words. Addiction, borderline. Borderline, yeah, histrionic, antisocial. So, you know, it's become a catch-all term, which is actually a crime against science because it does have a fairly specific and well-studied definition uh, that we use repeatedly in mental health. So it's kind of like the term uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It means something very specific, but you'll see people who like to keep their desk neat and they'll say, oh, I'm OCD. (laughs) No, you're not. You know, it's a huge difference. And though a distinction should be drawn between narcissism as a construct and narcissistic personality disorder, correct? Right. The, The official personality disorder is really an expression of grandiose narcissism. It's fairly restricted to that. It doesn't cover vulnerable, which is actually an important type of narcissism as far as toxicity. It also requires significant distress. Any personality disorder requires that the person is not functioning. So if somebody is highly narcissistic, even if it's grandiose, and they are you know, in a leadership position, management position, a position of power where the dysfunction is hard to see, they would not qualify as having narcissistic personality disorder. They would have to have that dysfunction. So in a way, the narcissism can actually disguise some of the clinical components because a person's success when they're narcissistic can make it seem like they're not dysfunctional because technically they're not. But if they were put into another context, they would be. And arguably, you know, people say that means the disorder isn't valid, but arguably every disorder is like that, right? Consider something like generalized anxiety disorder. Well, if a person has that disorder or they have symptoms that point toward that disorder and they're like independently wealthy, they never have to go out, they never have to work, they don't have to interact with people, then their anxiety might not be as bad, right? Or something like social anxiety disorder that's triggered by interactions, So they could appear to be very functional, but if they had to be put in a work environment where they're giving talks in front of people, public speaking, they would be a wreck. Sure. So, you know, in in that way, diagnosis can be a little spongy (laughs) because it is highly dependent on the stage of life, the context, and even the individual's perception. Um, So, but yes, NPD, the disorder is a bit different and probably misused quite a bit as well. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, in in this podcast and your other educational endeavors as well, I would say it must be difficult to keep up that distinction and and avoid confusion. But our goal here is is to avoid uh, conflating narcissistic personality disorder with a more general construct of narcissism or toxic, which is even broader. And as well, we want to cover other difficult personality traits or types um, that, that are not narcissism, um, but could be considered, you know, as, as you mentioned, toxic. But let's, on that note, focus on uh, narcissism right now as a, uh, a construct. Why, why is there so much interested Uh, so much interest in narcissism? And then can you speak to the construct of narcissistic abuse? So I think what happens is people enter into various relationships, romantic relationships, work relationships, relationships at church, school in their neighborhood. 
And there's different patterns they tend to see. They see sometimes other people are self-centered, self-aggrandizing, tend to have a lot of fantasies, kind of put off a sense of entitlement. Maybe they lie a lot. They're really charming, but then there's not much substance to them. And over time, people have these different adjectives like I've just used to describe these people. But then you see this pattern forms and all of it kind of moves in one direction. It kind of points toward the construct of narcissism. So I think what's happened with the interest in narcissism is one is it's just a term that has been studied a lot and it really connects well to people's experiences. People get it. It makes sense. They see all these characteristics, then they hear about narcissism. They say, oh, now it all comes together for me. It's narcissism. This is what's been happening the whole time. I think the other part in terms of the rise in the interest is that narcissism itself has been on the rise. And we see this in really uh, hundreds, if not over a thousand different scientific articles where there's still some debate, but certainly in particular areas, narcissism has been increasing. For example, all these studies we see on selfies and, and the rise of social media, uh, it is actually linked to narcissism. And we've seen frightening outcomes from people who are narcissistic. They get into positions of leadership and power. And you can see that there's really, at that point, doesn't seem like there's any such thing as adaptive narcissism. It all becomes very maladaptive. There's always a price to pay uh, when interacting with a narcissist. In terms of narcissistic abuse, I think what that term really means is somebody, for whatever reason, who, are, who is in a relationship with a narcissist is going to, again, kind of have to pay that cost, right? That's the price of admission for a relationship with a narcissist. And it's insidious, right? Like physical abuse can be insidious as well. Well, what about that? Are there uh, terms that would be synonymous with narcissistic abuse, like emotional abuse? And, and how do you define abuse? Like, I know it can't be just like, you know, my spouse doesn't uh, ever pack the dishwasher, even though I ask, and uh, therefore I'm being abused. Not to make uh, light of, of serious situations, but there are, there are serious situations that relate to uh, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, and are those things the same as narcissistic abuse? Yeah, I think the narcissistic abuse, the key would be it's insidious. So, it's, you know, narcissist is manipulative. They have a long game in mind, even if they don't really truly understand it based on their self-centeredness. So, they're not going to be usually exclusively, obviously abusive, like striking somebody physically, calling them names, screaming at them. Narcissists tend to be, again, subtle, insidious, and they have a plan that has some type of extended duration to it. So, they want to maintain control over a person. They want another person to meet their needs uh, without them meeting the person's needs, right? So, they're always looking for an advantage in that relationship. You know, one could argue that being narcissistic, you know, if somebody sees somebody who's narcissistic, they could just react by cutting them off, right? Just by walking away. And in that way, it's not really abuse because it's much harder to leave somebody in a physically abusive relationship where there's threats of death and all that. But the narcissistic abuse can really rise to that same level because of the manipulation, right? If you consider like we see these stories of older Americans or 
people from any country, they get exploited for their money by like a son, a son-in-law, a daughter, daughter-in-law, something like that. That's narcissistic abuse, right? They're being manipulated to pay, you know, to pay money to people, right? To, they're being manipulated out of their, their hard-earned retirement. Now, they're thought of as vulnerable because they're older, but most older people are pretty sharp, right? They, they know when somebody's trying to take something from them. So you see these people trying to provide like affection and attention in exchange for their money. They're trying to take advantage of the situation and they think that the older individual needs something and they're trying to be that. You can make the same argument for these situations where a very young person will marry an older person. You know, is it really romance? Are they really passionately in love? Or are they being a little bit narcissistic? Do they want to have wealth and power and they're willing to pretend they love somebody to get it? Uh, I think it becomes trickier when the people are closer in age and closer in status. That's when I get more questions about, okay, why doesn't the person just leave? Right? There's no power differential. You know, if somebody's being a jerk or whatever to you, walk away. And I think that's where, you know, you really have to dig into the destructive nature. And, and again, I can't emphasize it enough, the subtle nature, insidious nature of the narcissism and how it really does grow directionally over time. It is difficult to escape a relationship with a narcissist because of the way they try to convince you to feel about them right over the long run. Is that why you create content that uh, helps educate the public on uh, narcissism or uh, toxic personalities? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the difficulties with those relationships is you start to blame yourself. If you're the victim, you know, you start to blame yourself and think, you know, maybe I am a bad person. And, and I think that requires some type of education, like right? there's a benefit to learning about that. A great example is an employment relationship where somebody works for a narcissistic supervisor. You see this gaslighting occurs where the supervisor is constantly telling the employee, you're not good enough to be in this field. You're not a, a good producer. Your education was awful. You're being outperformed by all your colleagues. I'm going to promote one of your colleagues above you, even though that person clearly doesn't have the same skills, but somehow as a supervisor, I'm saying I know that they have more skills than you or they're more valuable. And over time, that employee may start to believe the nonsense, right? They start to believe, okay, you know, I, I keep hearing this from my supervisor. I'm supposed to respect the supervisor. I must be a terrible employee. And they adopt essentially a point of view that now helps the narcissist complete their agenda, right? So, Again, the abuse is woven through over time. So it's not necessarily one remark that hurts. It's the adoption of a persona, adoption of internalized value that the person can take on because of being mistreated by the narcissist. Another great example is a parent who is dominant and controlling over a child, right? That child's going to form to understand that they are meant to be dominated. They should submit. They don't have their own agency. That's... Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. 
It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Usually more pervasive because children are more vulnerable, but the same thing can happen in a relationship with an adult. The same thing can happen between a supervisor and employee. And I think only education, only saying, look, let's break down this kind of extended structure and kind of show you how you got into the situation. Why do we believe what we believe, right? And if, if what we believe is incorrect, often we listen to somebody we should not have. Yeah. And that, all that makes sense. But I don't know if it's it's fair to say, but I kind of have a gestalt that the term narcissistic abuse is not probably looked upon favorably by the mainstream professionals in various fields of mental health. Is that, is that right or, or wrong, I, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I would say I don't necessarily look upon it favorably either. Uh, it does describe something that's real, but we don't study it with those words, ah, right? Gotcha. So we would look at narcissism. We would look at uh, dysfunction in relationships. We would look at individual dynamics and groups of dynamics. Uh, again, kind of talking about before, like the marriage and family therapists tend to study that a lot, like your role in a family, in a constellation of different components, you know, where you fit in. Narcissism can creep into that and have an effect, just like antisocial behavior and histrionic behavior and borderline behavior, obsessive compulsive behavior, paranoid behavior, all those personality structures play a part. So in a way, yeah, narcissistic abuse is simplistic and reductionistic because usually if somebody is narcissistic, they have other personality traits that are of interest as well that could be affecting a relationship. Sure. And I suppose, too, that um, if you're having uh, some of the, the adverse effects of being in a relationship where one uh, side, not you, is more narcissistic or has that so-called like kind of toxic personality, um, you're going to go to a counselor, a, th a therapist of sorts, and um, tell them your symptoms and they're you know, they're not necessarily, they're not there to diagnose someone else that they're not seeing. So, so with that being said, why, why is a professional perspective helpful on the concepts that, that we're covering in this podcast? I, I think it makes sense to see a counselor to kind of dial in everyone's responsibility and probably more importantly, form a plan to go forward, right? So with relationships that involve narcissism, the person who's struggling with that relationship, in theory, who's not narcissistic, is going to take too much blame for the relationship going bad, too little blame. They're not going to understand blame. They're not going to understand the value of assigning responsibility in order to move forward. A counselor can help kind of move through all that. And I think a counselor is going to look at the situation and not necessarily agree with the client's initial perspective that they're 
spouse or partner or boss is or is not narcissistic. They're going to look at it objectively and try to say, well, you have a good point here, but I also understand why the narcissist did this or that person did this on this other side. Yeah. You're going to see kind of both or, or many perspectives. And narcissists tend to remove perspective from victims. So that's something that you do need restored if you've been exposed to a narcissist. You're trying to dial in your self-value. You're trying to understand the contributions you can make, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. Narcissists distort all kinds of information, right? I think one of the, the worst types of narcissism for that is when narcissists pay compliments to people in order to manipulate them, but they're giving compliments that are false, right? So it's not just a matter of the negative information they say isn't true. They can say something positive that isn't true. And positive feelings can manipulate people even more effectively than negative. Right? I've seen people before in my career that had very little talent in a certain area, but they've been with a narcissist who's been telling them they're very talented for many years. And that's just as wasteful. That's just as wasteful as being put down in some ways. You know? yeah. And ironically, contributes to more narcissism, right? We have a lot of people who believe they have a lot of skills when they don't. The Dunning-Kruger effect, is that? Exactly, yeah, which is, which is out of control in, uh, in, in various places. Yeah. Um, so what's that look like? Uh, somebody goes to a counselor, you know, maybe they listen to one of our podcasts or some other educational content, and they think that a lot of their own problems may be due to their relationships. How would a therapist evaluate whether things are a result of a more emotionally abusive relationship dynamic versus a primary mental health condition of that person. Yeah. And there's always going to be interplay there between external and internal factors. But I think counselors try to step back at the whole history, talk to the person, kind of get a feel of how the person relates, how they converse, how they process information and get a reasonable idea of their real strengths and weaknesses and capabilities and areas for improvement. The difficult part with counseling, of course, is, and you mentioned this, the counselor is not going to diagnose the third party, right? And I've been in plenty of situations where I have worked with people for a while and remained neutral and balanced. But inside, I was thinking, oh, yeah, their partner probably isn't a nice person or whatever, right? But I can't let that affect my judgment, but it's just my hunch. And then there'll be like a, a session where the client gives permission for a spouse or partner to come in. And I'll realize that the partner seems pretty reasonable. And it may actually be the client who is coming up with a lot of the, the negativity when, it, when they shouldn't. And But then at the same time, you have to be careful because that third party could be deceptive. So the difficulty, you know, is we're always basing on information we're getting from the client or from limited sources of information that could be biased, right? Sure. So I think this creates a bias where counselors like to make small moves because of that, right? So let's adjust things a little bit because we don't want to overcommit and be completely wrong because the information was bad. So it, it definitely has a conservative bias, so to speak, that the field is affected by, which is just, I think, a matter of good judgment. I mean, taking big moves based on bad information is a way to get in trouble. 
so what should somebody do if if they feel like maybe they're in a relationship that is unhealthy um they're confused by some of the the dynamics um because i've seen this too like especially in work-related settings where as an observer and not somebody um, on the other end of a dynamic uh, that is toxic uh, where a supervisor just was petty would be vindictive in small and little or uh, small and large ways uh, towards an employee who was confused and wanted, like her i could see her her mental health uh just tanking um and and i i don't know like i could i could definitely see somebody experiencing that not really have any uh ability to get their bearings going to um, a counselor and saying or should you bring this up to your mental health provider like i think that I am in a emotionally abusive relationship. Yeah, and I think the the solution is different for each type, right? So the the relationship's different than the example of a of a work setting in terms of what can be done. So like to I'll cover both though. So to start with a relationship, in a relationship the theory is that both people are giving to the value to to contribute to the quality of that union. Right. So, you know, like person A and person B, like I use all the time, you know, the contributions equal. They're both giving 50%. So if there's a problem, if there is some type of inequity, in theory, a person could look to their partner and say, hey, let's both go into therapy. Let's do couples counseling because I have problems, you have problems, but we're here to work it out. And if the person doesn't, that's not always a good sign. I don't think that's usually a good sign. But you could go to therapy individually and hope to learn better coping skills and maybe ways to give more in the relationship, but it's not going to change the other person. So ultimately, it comes down to a decision. You have to decide to stay with that person or not. And if you are going to stay, how can you make the best of it? As I said, you know, narcissism is just one piece of a person. So sometimes we deal with narcissists. Because in the totality of the relationship, it's still a good value. Now, with the work settings, this is completely different. In uh, corporate America and in businesses all over the world, bosses don't necessarily have the best interest of the employees in mind. It's not a situation where they've committed to one another to be the best they can be and to be the best as a couple. So you have these situations where you know you go into counseling and you might be able to address legitimate issues like performance issues or whatever. But again, that is probably not going to appease a narcissist. So you can't do a whole lot. I look at it like you're talking to a kid who, you know, you're talking to your kid who goes to school. And this is kind of like 1950s. Let me move back to like the 1950s. <laughs> and they say, you know, I'm being bullied by this kid. He's punching me in the arm, right? You might Back then you might say, well, go back and, and hit him as hard as you can. And that'll, you know, that'll teach them not to mess with you. Move into like maybe the 80s and 90s. Now the advice is, you know, be passive and tell the teacher. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, which is uh, better, but it still relies on the same mechanism, which is punishment will fix the bully. Hmm. Right. So, you know, our consequences will fix the bully or at least sure. protect the victim. The difficulty in, in work situations is they're really just as 
intransigent, right? So if you're being abused by a supervisor, you don't have a lot of cards you can play. You know, metaphorically, they're striking you repeatedly. You can't hit them back and there is no teacher to tell. So using the advice from the 50s or the 80s and 90s, there's no solution because there is no legal and safe way to deliver consequences. We would hope that in many companies like HR departments and other mechanisms would bring protection, but usually, honestly, they don't. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. (laughs) I've seen a lot of situations and HR departments are essentially arms of management, right? They're there to promote the goals. And the goal of a company is usually to cover up any type of abuse, whether it's narcissistic or otherwise, and fire the person who complains, right? I mean, that's, that's the typical, that's from the playbook. That's what they are trained to do. Uh, they're, they're, they're getting trained from people who are kind of winking at the same time, like, you know, hey, do everything legal, but in reality, get rid of the person because they're, the, they're complaining, they're asserting their rights, they must be the troublemaker. So it is grim. You know, I don't like to paint things as rosy when they're not. It's grim. When you have a narcissistic supervisor, that person's probably not going to change. And there's probably not a lot you can do to change them. So that really ties the hands of a counselor. You know, again, other than trying to appease the narcissist, which is typically a bad strategy, what can a victim really do? You know, maybe ask for a transfer, try to move to another company. It's not an option for many people. Well, hopefully throughout this podcast, we'll be able to give some actionable steps for people to uh, recognize early signs that uh, they may be in a toxic relational dynamic and be able to pivot to something better, prevent themselves from, you know, fully committing or otherwise just avoid um, getting into these relationships in the first place. And also, at the same time, provide some actionable information for people who um, are fully in relationships with these dynamics um, and give them strategies to help uh, cope or information they could use to decide how to safely or optimally leave a relationship uh, with somebody who is toxic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, th- that's Going back to what we talked about earlier, the education, right? That's where uh, professionals can be helpful. One one of the areas is to give people the information that's available, even if it's not always pleasant. You know, there are typically some options available and some options for interpersonal change. So it could be coping, it could be moving, whatever it is, whatever option it comes from, people can learn more about how that could make sense for them. All right, last question. There's a lot of content out there on this subject. How would you evaluate or how should somebody evaluate content on narcissism um, in general? Because there's a lot out there. Yeah, un- unfortunately, um, in, the, in the, world of, you know, the world of mental health, in the world of mental health counseling, in a way, we're a lot like other professions in that people look at what we do from the outside. And they think, oh, I could do that, right? It's, you know, you don't need an education. You don't need training, internship, supervision. And, you know, I see this in uh, situations where people think they can fly planes or be the captain of a ship or be an attorney or be a physician or be an accountant. Oh, you know, accountants just count numbers. I can do that. Yeah. There's actually a lot more to it, right? right. It's, it's actually pretty, pretty complex. And 
I think for especially people who are low in openness to experience, right? People tend to have rigid, concrete thinking and don't invest in theory. It can be very seductive to look at a person without training and say, well, they're smart because they're saying that professionals don't know what they're doing. I, I'm attracted to, to the idea that they have the real scoop based on experience and professionals must be paid by the government or in a conspiracy to take my money or whatever, right? It gets into kind of a dark conspiratorial place, but I see this all the time. I see this mentality that is formed and we see it with like COVID too. You know, this idea that, that people look at all these experts and say, no, no, you know, COVID is, is uh, fake or it's not as deadly as they say, or I don't know anybody with COVID. That's, I hear that a lot, right? I don't, yeah. I don't know anybody personally. You know, it's like saying, I don't know an astronaut, so we didn't go to the moon. I mean, it's flawed logic, but it's what people, it's what people do. I think this mentality has given rise to a lot of so-called uh, narcissism experts uh, who, like many frauds, I think, rely on some grains of truth, right? They take ideas from professionals, but then they massage them into their own brand and try to sell it as scientifically, empirically valid advice, which it's not. They're always saying, well, it's proven because I knew a couple people and I talked to them about it and they, they recovered. <laughs> yeah. Um, small sample size errors in, in research uh, methodology. But yeah, so, you know, to many mental health professionals, to many mental health professionals, this is a disturbing trend. You know, we see these uh, non experts, non clinicians, non practitioners who have found a loophole. And they can talk about narcissism with minimal liability because they're not providing counseling. They're not providing mental health advice. They're really talking about personality constructs, which have largely been unregulated. You know, you can generally talk about anybody's personality, no matter who you are. It's not diagnostic. And they've taken advantage of, of that substantially. And unfortunately, even though they have some good information sometimes, there's a lot of really bad advice woven in. Uh, you know, for example, they'll say, well, if you're with a narcissist, leaving is the only way out, the, the no contact route, yeah. which is highly simplistic and fails to appreciate, appreciate cultural, financial, educational, career, and family aspects that all factor into those decisions. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to leave a narcissist all the time as a blanket rule. Certain times, yes, but most of the time, it probably doesn't for most people. So, we see they're kind of out there trying to speak on something that's very nuanced with a very blunt instrument. So, it has caused a lot of frustration. All right. Well, you can listen to more content on toxic relationships, what makes relationships healthy versus toxic on this podcast. And also go to Dr. Grande's YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for Dr. Todd Grande or probably just Dr. Grande for even more educational content on mental health and personality topics. So thanks, Dr. Grande. We'll be seeing you back here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Brightigan and Madison Linden. 
The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.